Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. Good evening. Thank you so much for being with us here tonight um, for our very exciting event. Um, Tracy Reese is an American designer whose signature rich, daring colors and unique prints are crafted into joyful, feminine pieces for the modern woman. Tracy Reese's design philosophy is rooted in a commitment to bringing out the beauty in women of all shapes, sizes, and colors. Stimulated by the world around her, Tracy Reese takes inspiration from nature, art, dance, travel, and global cultures. Tracy attended Parsons, the New School for Design, where she received an accelerated degree in 1984. In 1997, Tracy Reese launched her eponymous collection to rave reviews. Her secondary line, Plenty by Tracy Reese, was introduced in 1998. She designed, Tracy Reese designs have been featured in the top fashion publications Vogue, Elle, Glamour, In Style, O, The Oprah Magazine, Essence, and Cosmopolitan. Her distinct point of view has also made her a celebrity favorite. Notable fans of the brand include First Lady Michelle Obama, Sarah Jessica Parker, Tracy Ellis. Uh, Ross and Mindy Kaling. A member of the Council of Fashion Designers of America since 1990, Tracy Reese serves on its board of directors. Tracy is a champion for many charities and social causes, including the AIDS Fund Committee for the New York uh, Community Trust and the Turnaround Arts Program through the President's Committee of the Humanities and Arts. Welcome, and thank you so much for being with us here tonight. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we're going to dig right in. Um, so. You very, very kindly not only gave us pieces for our Black Fashion Designers exhibition, you also participated in the video that was sponsored by the FIT Diversity Council, which have got, gotten such great attention um, in our exhibition and online. And one of my favorite things um, that you talked about in that video with Andre Leontali, and you talked about how um, as a child, you would um, help your mother with her sewing, that she would sew a dress for a night out in a single day, and then you would do the finishing while she did her makeup. I loved this story. Um, and so I wanted to ask, um, where did your mother learn to sew? And is there a family legacy in kind of fashion and sewing and making clothing? And did your mother ever imagine that you would turn these skills into such a big business? Right, That's a, those are great questions. You know, I think my mom was largely self-taught. I'm sure my grandmother taught her some. My grandmother sewed out of necessity, but she was a working woman, so she didn't have a lot of time to sew. Um, and my great-grandmother, um, did a little seamstress work, but not professionally. Um, so I think my mom was actually largely self-taught. I never thought about that before now. Um, but she did also teach me. And, you know, back in the day, we had home economics in school, and we also learned um, some rudimentary sewing in home ec. And I think my mom must have had it as well, you know, when she was a girl. Um, and really stuck with it. But it was a passion for her, and she had a lot of friends who also loved to sew. It was like a big production, you know, to go to the fabric store and, and buy patterns and, you know, get your fabric and notions and everything together. And it was always, like, really exciting, and I, I got that bug from her. So did she have a preference for certain patterns? I know designers put out patterns, but there were lots of pattern companies. Do you, do, do you remember kind of a signature style that she looked for? You know, she loved a good Vogue pattern, but those were always really expensive. So she sewed from, you know, 
all of the companies, McCall's, Simplicity, Butterick. Um, it really depended on, you know, what the style was and if it was something that she thought would look cute on her. But she, she amended a lot of the patterns herself because my mom had a very um, curvaceous figure. She had tiny waist and big hips. And um, she really had to sew to find, you know, so she would have clothes that were tailored to her body. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so did, has, she, has she ever kind of expressed that, um, you know, she saw you being a fashion designer or um, that you might kind of take this trajectory? You know, we didn't realize it was a career and that's like, we just thought it was a hobby. I mean, growing up, you know, sewing, making clothes was a hobby and we took it seriously for pleasure but didn't realize that it was a business and it wasn't until... Um, when I was in high school, I was actually in like a honors program. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was in liberal arts and my high school in Detroit actually had curriculum. And um, there was a, an art department and my mom before me had taken classes in the art department and knew the head of the art department. His name was Irving Berg. And every time she would come for parent-teacher conferences, she would see him in the hallway and he would say, you know, we've got to get Tracy into the art department. and. I, I was able to take electives, and I took them in the art department, and there was a fashion class. Um, so it sort of all came together in that class, and um, I was encouraged by faculty there, uh, Dr. Cleedy Taylor, who, you know, she runs uh, Arts Extended Gallery in Detroit, and she has for maybe like some 40 years. Um, but she's interested in fashion, but really much more in fine art, but she had that taste level, you know, and she's like, you know what? Um, you should look into uh, Parsons School of Design in New York. It would, you know, really be a nice next step for you. And I know that they have summer programs for high school students. So the summer that I was 16, I came to New York uh, for the Parsons summer program. And I had not an uncle who were living in East Orange, New Jersey, and they had two babies. One was 11 months old and one was brand new. And that was just like the icing on the cake. It's like, I'm going to go to East Orange and be in baby world and go to Parsons during the day. And my younger sister came too to help take care of the kids. And um, it was just a fantastic summer. But my eyes were really opened to fashion as a business, as an industry. And, you know, we, we were really, you know, educators. Just like, okay, this, you know, industry supports this many workers in New York city alone and you know in the country you know fashion is at the time was like a 13th largest export um, of the united states and so it was like okay this is more and more interesting because for me just um just sketching and sewing didn't amount to a feasible i mean it's something i could go to my dad to <laughs> with and say, I want to do this for a living. Um, but uh, the business side of it really um, excited and intrigued me. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that I wanted to pursue, you know, career in fashion design. Um, and, you know, I sold my dad on it. And, you know, for someone of my generation, you know, whose parents, you know, really had to um, work their way through college, and they were the first in their families to you know, get college degrees and to get accelerated degrees, you know, everybody's kids were going off to be doctors and lawyers and X, Y, and Z, so to say, you know, that I wanted to go to art school. 
and become a fashion designer, I really had to sell it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I made a case, and you know, they were behind me. I think if I'd been a boy, it would have been a lot harder, like impossible. Um, but since I was a girl, I think my dad was like, well, okay, and my mom was all for it. She was always in the arts, mm -hmm. and you know, she taught modern dance at uh, community college in, in Detroit, and her whole side of the family is extremely artistic. And I think for my dad, he was looking down the road and he saw it as an opportunity um, for me to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So speaking of that, so after you graduated, um, you worked in Paris, um, and then you started your own No, line. I didn't, I wish. I did a little oh. bit. My first job um, was with a contemporary company. Um, the owner was French. Oh, I and see. And the designer was Martine Sipbon, who mm -hmm. is French. So I did have to go to Paris quite a bit to work with her. Wasn't there full time, but it was an uh, it was an awesome experience. It's been so exciting. Yeah, very. But then, very courageously, you started your own line, and so at that particular time, um, the business didn't work out. But um, but then you were able to obviously build the company that you have now. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what did you learn from this first venture, and what did you do differently the second time? I learned that I was too young and I was too inexperienced. Those are like the key, the key thing, the key takeaways from uh, that first failure. I mean, I was. 23, 24 years old, and you know you think you know everything, and you're impatient, and you want to jump out there and and do it. And my friends all had businesses. I mean, I went to school with Mark Jacobs, and we were like best friends all the way through school. He had his own business almost immediately out of school. My other best friend, Chris Isles, had a little store on First Avenue and First Street with another business partner, and she would literally stand behind the counter of the store stitching stitching clothing, you know, she and her, her partner, and they would, you know, just finish a piece and hang it on the racks. Um, but it was like this amazing little jewel box. And a lot of my other friends had started, you know, small businesses, and every night, you know, there was some midnight fashion show at, you know, Palladium or someplace. And um, it's just what we were all doing. But the, the stock market crashed in, in 1988, and, um, you know, there was a lot less money to go around, and definitely there were fewer people who were willing to invest in fashion. And I was definitely at that stage where I needed a cash infusion. I was doing everything myself, and my dad had uh, financed the business, and he would send me some money every month, but there was never quite enough, mm -hmm. you know. So when I closed the business in 89, it was the end of 88, I went, Mark invited me to go to Perry Ellis because he had just gotten a job at Perry Ellis and I went and it was really nice getting a paycheck for a while, you know, because it was very hand to mouth. I, I can't tell you how many times I was in landlord tenant court, you know, fighting to keep my apartment because I would use my rent money to buy, you know, sample fabric or pay, you know, a pattern maker or do whatever I had to do, everything, all the other expenses came first. And um, it was super stressful, and I, I just I wasn't strong enough at that time to to manage the stress and manage the business and and do so much of it by myself. Well, that I mean, it sounds like extraordinary that you know that you're able to kind of get that off the ground at all. I mean, in today's you know you see so many students who are so bright and so creative, right. um, but business isn't necessarily their interest, and they'll say that, like, I'm not interested in, right. you know, that part, um, but it really is so, so important. You have to be interested in it at least to a degree. I mean, to handle the business side um, 
a long side design is um, is physically impossible. Mm -hmm. um, I prefer to handle the creative side, but I am deeply interested in you know the business of my company. Um, but you you need other people who know more than you do and who have expertise in different areas of the business and production and finance and um, operations. You know, every all of the logistical parts of the business and, and in sales, you know, even more so. So I think that, you know, kind of stepping out and taking a breath and um, giving myself the opportunity to gain more experience, to meet more people. Um, I mean, we got off to a great start. I mean, I, we sold Barney's and, and Bergdorf's and, you know, Saks and all these stores at the very beginning. Um, but it was just a little bit you know, and not quite enough to keep me going. And everybody, you know, for the first year, I sold Barney's exclusively in New York because the buyer was like, if you sell Bergdorf's, I'll, I'll stop buying you. You know, and finally, like a year in, the light bulb went off. It was just like, I can't survive on this, and I'm going to have to, if Bergdorf's wants it, I'm going to sell it to them, you know. And she she didn't drop me, you know. <laughs> it, so it's like, okay, whatever, mm -hmm. you know. But when you're 20-something years old, it's like, oh my God, you know, I used to, I had another friend who was also, you know, in the same position and we were, you know, together, we were like, okay, we're going to sell Bergdorf's. We have to do it to stay alive, you know, and it was like a very tumultuous decision, but, um, but it was fine in the end. But, you know, you, you take all of that, you know, very, it's <laughs> <Sounds> terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying. But, you know, there were so many people who were doing what we were doing. I mean, every month, you know, you'd have a cancellation date at the end of the month to, you know, you had to ship or, or die, basically. And, you know, I'd get to UPS. I'd rent a, a jacked-up white van, you know, and go to the factory, and I'd pick up my production. I'd take it all downstairs and load it into the, the van, and I'd, I'd have my boxes and my packing list prepared, and I would I would pack my orders in the back of this van, close my boxes, and drive to UPS, and you'd get there like, you know, five minutes before closing, run inside and get a hand truck, and go back out and like, put your boxes on your hand truck, and like, tip that stuff up the curb and drag it in. There would be at least five other designers in there doing what I was doing, wow. you know? We're all like, filling out bills of lading, and you know, shipping at the last minute. But there was a community of people who, you know, were, were in the same, you know, exactly. And uh, we were in it together, you know, separately but together. And that made it um, bearable. Mm -hmm. But it was still really scary. Wow. Um, one of the other things that um, you talked so eloquently about in our video for the exhibition was how Detroit inspires you as a mm -hmm. city. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how Detroit has shaped your aesthetic and how that might compare to New York or maybe other cities that inspire you. Right. I think it's more, you know, with Detroit, it's the city itself, but it's very much the people um, and how I grew up. I mean, we um, dressed up for every occasion. You know, and life is changing. We, we, we don't dress up the way we used to, but Detroit is still very ceremonial, you know, and if you're going to church or you're going to see a show or you're going, you know, out to a fancy restaurant for dinner, you dress up. And people dress up to see each other, and they love to show their latest wares. And I remember um, 
you know, when Ebony Fashion Fair would come to town and my mom, you know, it was like weeks of planning. She would, you know, decide which pattern. She would like splurge on a Saint Laurent pattern, Vogue pattern, and, you know, she would have her fabrics all laid out and she's going to wear this outfit and she's going to wear that hat with it and those shoes and she was going to look bad and she'd be talking to her friends and, you know, everybody was planning looks and, you know, so I started sewing my outfits too, you know, and during the intermission, everybody would parade up and down the the lobby <laughs> in their outfits and it was like a big deal but that was like so Detroit you know and I think that you know that's part of how I became known for designing dresses you know and things that are great for you know wonderful occasions in your life and it's not all that I do but it's something I've always loved to do I remember when I was in Parsons and you know the department head would critique our our um our croquis and he would be, you know, he'd look at my croquis and he'd be like, stop putting hats on these women. <laughs> women don't wear hats and dresses, you know, that's not, you know, it's like, well, they do where I come from, you know, and I, I love a good hat and a dress. So, um, but it definitely, um, just the heart of the city, the, the grid of the city, and also, you know, the comeback story now is extremely exciting. You know, there's so much happening in Detroit, and they're actually trying to um, create garment production, a place for garment production in the city. And this is, you know, manufacturing coming back to a town that's quintessentially a manufacturing city. So it's like, it, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, so um, stay tuned, there could be exciting things happening as it becomes harder and harder to do production right here in New York. Um, the zoning has changed dramatically. It's just really tough and I think extremely hard for young designers starting out to access factories and you know, uh, really uh, get their production uh, managed here in the city. When I started, you know, it did everything like in a three block radius in the garment center and that is no more. It was really interesting, my co-curator and I, when we were looking kind of putting our heads together and thinking about Detroit after your comment, how many people evolved, involved in the exhibition are from Detroit? Kevin Hall's from Detroit, Robin Gavon, um, Veronica Webb. Right. And so I really think there's a fashion, there's the something- The list goes on and on. Absolutely, yeah. there's something about Detroit that's, you know, it's a, it's a fashion Montana city. Was in the, yeah. yeah, it is a fashion city. And Anna Sui, who wasn't in, is from Detroit, yes. John Barbados. I mean, there are quite a few people that's interesting. There's something there. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so I think many people here and you know around the world would agree that a major strength you have as a designer is creating flattering and uplifting styles for women. So my question is, um, who do you imagine when you design? Is it a different woman every collection? Is it the same women? Um, is it yourself? Who do you think about when you design your clothes? You know, I hate to pigeonhole it because I just feel like it's not modern to say this is this is the woman that I'm designing for. There are so many women that I find inspiring, so many people. Um, it, it is a selfish thing, you know, it's like what do I want to wear next or what's not working for me in my wardrobe now? What problem do I want to solve? Um, in our office, we've got, you know, a couple dozen women who are all different shapes and sizes. Um, so it's always interesting to sit down and really talk about it. It's like, what are you excited for next? What do you wish you had? What did you see that you thought was cute? Um, so there's that, but I, I really hate to like hone it down to any one type of woman. If anything, it's an attitude. Mm -hmm. Someone who's optimistic, who loves color, um, who's interested in, in silhouette um, and, and beautiful textiles.
So you've been really successful in branching out into multiple categories and product lines. So when did you know it was the right time to expand your business? And um, what are the kind of the challenges you have in creating simultaneous lines? Yeah, I mean, success has been, you know, up and down. It really depends on what's going on um, in the market, in our market, and in the economy. And we've had licenses for handbags and shoes, and that was an interesting, um, we've had two different licenses for shoes, one for handbags, and both were really interesting um, experiences. With handbags, I always felt that it wasn't necessarily the right category for us. It was an interesting category to me. Um, but I find that, you know, we're, we're a contemporary resource, which means, you know, we are affordable fashion. It's still expensive for most people. You know, if you say a dress is going to be $450, that's like way too much for a lot of people. Um, but we, you know, we start on Tracy Reese at about, you know, one night, no. 198 to 225 to 275 for a blouse, maybe $300 to $500 is like, like the median for a dress. And the customer that can afford um, those prices for clothing doesn't really want a contemporary handbag. You know, so say our handbags were like $500, between four, probably four and six. Um, the woman buying a $400 dress, she actually wants a $2,000 bag. You know, she wants a luxury handbag where, you know, everybody knows what it is. So it was sort of a, a shrinking market, and it's, it's, you know, there are very few resources in that price category that have, you know, really seen a lot of saturation in the market. It's, it's, it's kind of challenging. The licenses themselves, you know, maybe their goals, their business goals too, are, are not in line with, not in sync with yours and not really interested in world domination. You know, I, I, I don't want my product to be in every single department store. I think it loses a lot of its cachet if it's too available, but the licenses in order to make profit, you know, they want to put it in as many doors as possible, and it's a volume business. So I think I was always at odds a little bit um, with that concept. With shoes, we produced them ourselves for several years, and, you know, we learned about um, shoemaking from a great agent in Florence and really kind of learned it from from the floor up from the tannery up and um, I love designing shoes and that was fun and finally it was like okay let's go on and sign with a license for this but it's the same thing they you know it's like a like a world domination mindset you know we want to like open market with like 80 styles and blah, blah blah and it was just like overwhelming and it's like what about you know like 12 really good ones yeah. you know let's open with like 12 really good ones that really say something about the brand and not have to have an example of every style in every category. It's like, you know, we're not about duck boots, or we weren't at the time. So it's, you know, that was sort of, again, like sort of at odds with my own personal philosophy on, you know, distribution and, and, and how I see my brand. Um, for Plenty, which is our secondary line, which is a little less expensive, it's more lifestyle oriented, we did um, home collection, which again, we started producing ourselves. Um, and um, 
I really loved doing that. Um, but it was really all about print and color, and um, we ultimately licensed that as well. And, you know, the, the change in distribution for betting has really uh, taken a, 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 a severe turn, like from like maybe 15 years ago, where you could walk into Macy's or Bloomingdale's or whatever and go into the sheets department and find great things. And every department store had a betting department. Now very few of them do. And the key players are the big box stores. It's Bed Bath & Beyond. And then it becomes like TJ Maxx is like the biggest. You know, so it's it's a different ball game when you're designing um, for department stores versus um, those mass retailers. So you have to want to see your brand there and kind of um, want to make a, a fifty dollar set of sheets. You know, so it's a it's a different uh, it's a different world you know, than where we started. You know, we were selling our sheets like to Anthropology, and, and we still do projects with them, um, which is fun. And their customers, you know, she's willing to pay more for quality and for design, which is great. But it's more of a niche market, um, that type of product um, now, because I think most people are just accustomed to, you know, getting a, you know, who knows, maybe it's a $30 set of sheets now. The prices just keep, like, you know, bottoming down. So it's an interesting game, uh, the whole, like, expansion and licensing. Lately, um, you know, what I've been really um, excited to do is expand sizing. And for spring 2017, we um, expanded our sizing out of the traditional contemporary 0 to 12. And we're going up to 18 on certain styles. And we continued that for fall and hope to expand, you know, up to 24. But right now we're on a learning curve. And also working with our retail partners to make sure that the expanded sizing is housed in the same department as the 0 to 12s. Because I, I don't believe that size 18 should have to go, you know, to the basement or to the attic to, to find her clothes. She wants to shop with everybody else on the fun floor with the good music, you know. So, you know, it's, it's taking time, but they're really starting to um, uh, change, you know, how the, the extended sizes are, are displayed. And it's, it's going to take a little while, but there are pockets of success here and there. Um, we, you know, we've always been told that that product has to be a lot less expensive and the customer's not willing to pay the same prices. I don't agree with that, you know. I mean, I think there are a lot of women who want to pay, you know, are willing to pay for quality and design. Um, so we just have to start breaking down some of those stereotypes about who that customer is and, and where she's shopping and what she's willing to pay. So it sounds like you, I mean, obviously have such a well-developed sense of your brand and where it fits in the market. And you're obviously so aware of things that are happening in the market. But when you started out, do you feel like your idea of what your brand was then is the same now and just kind of influenced by more information? Or do you feel like it's evolved? I think it's evolved. I mean, you know, in the beginning, you know, I've always loved um, fashion history and was very inspired by vintage detailing and dressmaker detailing. And some of those... Um, traits, you know, have become outmoded, you know, and I will always love vintage clothes and I, I wear vintage clothing and 
all of that, but I don't want the clothing to look or feel vintage. I want it to definitely look modern and updated. So, you know, certain things that were hallmarks of, of my aesthetic have evolved over time and they need to continue to evolve in order, in order for me to stay relevant. Um, but I think that the core, you know, designing clothes that are flattering, I, I really, you know, I don't want to design and produce clothing that women don't look good in, mm -hmm. you know? And it's, you know, we all have different body types and, you know, different um, areas that we want to accentuate or play down. And, um, and I know that I can design something for every different type of body and, and make a woman look and feel good. I'm not doing it as an experiment and, sh and she's not a faceless use um, for me. It's really about you know making sure that com the, com the clothing is comfortable and that it works in our customers' lives, that it serves a purpose in her life, mm -hmm. um, other than you know looking pretty and hanging in the closet. You know, it's, it's, it's gotta work for you. Your clothing should work for you, especially if you've paid good money for it. One of the interesting things you also said in the video was that you felt that when you started out, you faced more challenges as a female designer than as a black designer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even this, this month's issue of Vogue is all about kind of celebrating women, women in fashion. And it seems like, you know, because obviously when we think about fashion, we think about that's a, women, that's a female domain. Um, but there are less female designers making women's wear than men's wear. So how in your, the course of your career, have you, how have you felt um, the fashion industry has changed in the way it's treated female designers, female entrepreneurs? And, um, you know, is it, hopefully it's better than it used to be. Um, but talk a little bit about that. Sort of, not really. You know, there's always going to be, you know, a charming, cute guy who's got great ideas that are might be more rooted in fantasy than reality that is going to grab attention. And I think that that's part of the game and it's necessary, you know, I mean, sometimes those seeds of ideas that aren't quite wearable and, and don't feel real now, you know, maybe three, four years down the road, they become mainstream or people figure out how to adjust and work with it and, and you know, take it to the next stage where it's really, um, a, a useful garment. Um, I think that women editors are not as charmed by female designers. And that's, that's just real. I mean, when we were at Parsons, you know, we used to call our class the aluminum class. And this was, we rated the classes in metals. So the class before us was platinum. The balance of male to female in that class was about 50-50. And um, it was a small class of 30 graduating students, so it had all the platinum qualities. Our class was 43, and out of the 43, there were, I think, 37 females and six males. So we were aluminum, and we were too large, and there were too many women. And the class after us, had a few more guys and they were a little bit smaller, you know, so it's like we rated the classes because they really, they didn't like our class because it, we weren't, you know, a bunch of charming, you know, fellows. And it was, it was very obvious, mm -hmm. you know, the, the treatment was definitely different. And, you know, 
getting into the industry, I mean, at the time that I started, you know, it was an industry full of like old school garmentos who would kind of look at you like, you don't know what you're doing, you know, and, and you're a girl and, you know, the, the people holding the, the, the pocketbooks um, weren't eager to open them up to women. And I think, you know, as a woman of color, as a person of color, I've never sought out discrimination. It's like, if I want to do something, I'm going to figure out how to do it. If you don't like how I look, then that can't be my problem. I might not get what I want when I want it, but I will achieve it at some point in my own time at the right time. So, you know, when I say that um, being a person of color was not as difficult as being a woman, I think probably because I ignored some of the discrimination mm -hmm. that was um, aimed at me. Um, but with other women, you know, you're kind of looking around like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's how it's going. But it's, it's changing a little bit, but I think a lot of the powers that be still, you know, think that a man has better ideas of how a woman should dress than a woman does. And, you know, one of my all-time favorite exhibits here at FIT was, um, it was an all-woman designer exhibit, and it spanned uh, from the teens through, um, like, the 40s. And it was such a beautiful exhibit, and the pieces were so well thought out and so wearable, but they were also beautiful, you know? So you don't have to be a, a fantasy or a muse you know, to wear those clothes. And I think that most women designers are really thinking about function mm -hmm. and um, flatterment, and, and they're not, you know, as much in the fantasy, you know, zone. And I would not presume to design men's clothes just because I'm not a man and I can't, I'm not in a man's body every day feeling how it feels to wear these clothes mm -hmm. and facing whatever challenges, you know, arise in a man's life that I would need to, you know, consider when I'm designing. And, you know, some people can really take themselves out of that and still achieve, you know, great success and design beautiful clothes for the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. I just was never that, that person. Um, and so I think I have one more question, um, and then we'll open it up to questions from the audience which I have here. Um, but um, going back to kind of uh, your identity as a designer, so you are one of the most successful black designers working today. How would you describe the state of diversity in the fashion industry, not only through visible figures like yourself and models, but also behind the scenes as well? And that's, I mean, expanding to women as well, like, you know, stylists, photographers, CEOs, um, financiers. Um, how has that changed? There's a lot of work to be done. I mean, when we look at the pool of buyers and um, retail executives, there are very few uh, people of color in that pool. Um, executives in um, fashion businesses, very few. Um, we have some amazing stylists, some incredible editors, journalists, um, and as you said, models. Um, I think that there's a lot of design talent that's beginning to be recognized, and that's fantastic. But in this eats of power, we are extremely underrepresented. Well, thank you so much, and um, we'll have some questions from the audience. Um, 
So you've mentioned that in today's world, it's way harder for upcoming designers to walk into a factory and get production done. What advice can you give to any up and coming designers trying to figure out how to get from the conceptual to a manufactured garment? Right, always a challenge. I mean, there's a lot of legwork involved. And I mean, literally when, when I first started business the first time, I, I went up and down the streets in the garment center and into the buildings that I knew had factories and I knocked on doors and stepped in the factories and tried to talk to, you know, the factory owners and see if they would take on my work or look at the type of production they were doing to see if, you know, um, it was similar to what I needed. Um, I know that they are um, investing a lot in a production hub in Brooklyn. Um, and some of the factories have moved out to Long Island City or Brooklyn and other areas. So it's not as centralized as it was. So I feel like the challenge is definitely greater. I think that the Brooklyn hub will make things a little bit easier if, if it even just centralizes some of the the, the, the sub-factories, the pleaders, and the, the, the people who make spaghetti, the bias cutters, the, the bonding, the fusing, the, you know, all of those other um, factories that we also need to complete a garment. Um, but you're going to have to, you just have to do that footwork and you have to network. CFDA does have um, a lot of information that's available to young designers looking for um, uh, production. Uh, looking for factories and looking for introductions. So I would definitely get in touch with uh, CFDA. Um, that information is there for you. It's been gathered for you, and they're working really hard to um, sort of keep production alive um, in the state of New York. So that's the first stop, but I would definitely talk to other uh, designers who are you know, trying to get production done here, big or small, write letters, uh, send emails, knock on doors. You're going to have to really network it, but take advantage of CFDA and, you know, they have, they have a lot of information, but also extensions and people who can give you even more. So um, this question, um, it says, what do you look for in a new hire? Um, but I wanted to um, circle back because one of the things that you said is that learning sewing from your mom or in high school, like, you know, you, you saw you could construct a garment, you could physically build it, and you took those things that which were a hobby and were fun, and then you realized when you went to Parsons for summer that it could be a business. Right. And do you feel that um, new hires or interns that you get, do you feel like they have an opposite view that... Um, that they look at fashion as um, kind of more conceptually or as a business and are less attuned to kind of the physicality of it? Or do you find that people come up the same way that you did, starting with kind of the physical object? No two people are alike. Everybody's path is different. Mm -hmm. Each school has a different focus, a different strength. Um, each person has different drive a different goal in mind. Um, so I find that there's not one like state of mind that I encounter over and over mm -hmm. again. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I probably don't hire um, as others do. I'm really looking for um, an attitude, you know, a can-do attitude. Mm -hmm. I'm just brought up old school. It's like, you know, if my mother sent me upstairs to find something and you know, the, the, that line was, don't make me have to come up there myself. <laughs> and um, there was nothing worse in life than doing a half-done job. So it's like, if, if you're coming to me with, you know, um, a can-do spirit and you're a team 
player and you're resourceful and you've got common sense, mm -hmm. all of those things rate higher for me than, than your talent. Um, you can have so much talent and not be able to utilize it because mm -hmm. you can't get past yourself or, or you think it's okay to have finished something, that there's gonna be some fairy come up behind you and sort of finish that with a sprinkle of a wand. Um, so I'm not interested in, you know, and it, especially with kids coming out of school, it's like recognizing that there's a lot you need to learn mm -hmm. and being open to doing every facet of this work. You know, as someone who started a business and had to do everything in the beginning, I mean, I used to like hand tally my orders so that I could make a cutting ticket. And I used to, you know, do my own picking and packing, write my own invoices. And, you know, obviously I did my own shipping and, it's, it's, you have to be willing and interested mm -hmm. in the whole job, the whole industry. Because I think if you just pick a little place in it that is your comfort zone, you're, you're not gonna grow and you're, and you're, you're also not gonna be appreciative of, mm -hmm. of your coworkers and, and ultimately your employees. Um, so this question is, Looking back at kind of fashion history, who um, who's your favorite kind of historical designer, or who do you, or a couple of people that you um, maybe draw inspiration from, or maybe just love? Mm -hmm. Well, it goes back to that exhibit. I mean, I've always loved um, Vionnet and um, Calosur, and I, a lot of them are decorative mm -hmm. uh, designers. And some of Vionnet obviously was an amazing um, draper and, and pattern maker, and her stuff you know, still looks modern now when you look at how, you know, some of those little quarter scale mm -hmm. uh, drapes um, came out and you look at the, the genius behind the patterns. It's yeah. like that's so valid, you yeah. know, right now. So I tend to love uh, designers from that era. I always did love Martine Sipone's work and a lot of people here might not know who she is, but she was, you know, really uh, strong in the 80s and 90s and, um, I think she's kind of more behind the scenes now mm -hmm. than um, uh, she was then. But I worked for her, and I know her crazy sense of humor. But the you know amazing talent that was there. I mean, it was it was a gas working for her. And she also loved fashion history. You know, and she would call me up and you know I am thinking about the 70s, and I've been watching old Soul Train. I want you to go to the library. And at the time, we would go to the library and take Xeroxes of, <laughs> of, you know, pictures from old books and magazines. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't go, you know, Google everything. Yeah. You just had, you had to go out and really like look for stuff. And she loved the fact that I could, you know, come to FIT library, I could go to Parsons library, or I could go to New York Public Library and, and, and find, you know, imagery from like the, the 70s. She always loved the 70s, but it was like, hilarious and her process was fun and it it taught me a lot about you know the actual work of design but also you know not to take it all too seriously um, but there are so many designers that you know I admire I mean kind of heartbroken that you know Consuelo Castigliani is no longer at Marnie mm -hmm. um, but hopefully you know that line will continue in a strong way so Dries you know I can go to Paris and just sit in that Dries store for a couple of hours and it's like can I live here <laughs> it's so pretty yeah. I love this big amber couch awesome. yeah. well thank you so much for being with us here thank tonight you. it's been a pleasure